It's episode 29 of the Presentable Podcast, and I'm your host, Jeff Bean. Today on the show is Josh Clark, founder of the agency Big Medium. We talk about the implications of artificial intelligence and machine learning on design, and how designers can start to understand and influence the capabilities and limitations of these incredibly complex systems. So let's get right to it. So we should talk about artificial intelligence and how we design for it. That sounds like a great idea. You've been thinking about a lot of stuff um, that I think kind of collectively is in the zeitgeist right now. And and I think AI and machine learning is huge around that. And um, so I was sort of thinking uh, during the day today, what would I call an episode of the podcast around this? And the, the best thing I could come up with was a dinosaur on a surfboard. <laughs> <laughs> Which to me, like I was glad you used that as an example. It was my favorite example of where we are right now in current kind of technology capabilities with artificial intelligence. We can do amazing yeah. things and they go terribly wrong all the time. So yeah, you should tell yeah. the story of like what I'm talking about. Uh, well, there's this Twitter bot called uh, Pick Desk Bot, which is just basically a, a feed from the, well, it, it feeds the Microsoft Image Recognition API random images. Mm -hmm. And so every couple hours, there's just like a new image with a machine-generated caption, the machine trying to guess or describe what's in the image. And it does pretty well, you know, for most of the images. It's yeah. sort of like, oh, yeah, that's that's pretty close. But uh, every once in a while, there are just like these really weird and kind of charmingly wrong uh, captions. Yeah. And so one of them, there's just a, a, it's an illustration of a dinosaur with like a little scale at the bottom, you know, a little to, to show, to show size. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it recognizes the dinosaur and it says, this is a dinosaur on a surfboard, <laughs> which is a pretty good guess, you know, and it's, it's charming. It's like, what is that thing underneath? It doesn't have any, it doesn't make any sense. And it looks in fact, like, a dinosaur on a surfboard right. and sort of this this charming error of like hey that's a pretty good guess robot you know that's not that's not too bad and yet it's also completely wrong um and so it's this it's this funny thing where as human beings looking at it we understand the mistake and we smile but we also know that it's not good information right, that right, if, right. If didn't have our human judgment or or vision for that matter, right? If this is sort of something that a visually disabled person is is taking this on board of, you know, as an actual factual description of what it is, that nuance is lost to them. Yeah. They don't get uh, they don't get the joke. And it's just and it's just so stark because a three year old wouldn't get that wrong. Whereas these same technologies are now beating the the world go champion. And yeah, right. And that that contrast between these two things where. We are making machines that do remarkable, incredible, powerful things, but sometimes are so fundamentally wrong in a way. And I think it, it is in, in some way us anthropomorphizing this, right? My little kid would not confuse that for a surfboard, but, um, but why should I expect the machine to get it right? You know what I mean? Well, I do. I, I think that one of these sort of the, the damaging assumption right now is that artificial intelligence is really a proxy for human intelligence. I, I think I think it's Kevin Kelly who tries to make the distinction, calling it alien intelligence, uh, that it yeah. is an intelligence, but it's not ours. These machines think in a different way. Um, and so while I think that they can be really useful assistants or companion species to us in the work that we do or just, you know, in, in how we live our lives, assuming that they are 
little humans or naive humans is a mistake. And it's, it's actually, I think, one of the one of the sort of damaging things that I see beginning to happen is just sort of this this effort to try to slap a personality on these and to treat them to to make them behave as if they're they're human. It right. feels like sometimes the Turing test is not a very good goal when you realize, oh, wait a second, these things won't have human personalities. And grafting one on top of it just creates an inevitable uncanny valley. Right, right, right. It is uh, kind of human nature to to build in our own image, right? Like if you think of the early 20th century idea of a robot, it is always an android humanoid figure walking around trying to accomplish human tasks. When the reality is like robots end up looking much more like a, a automobile assembly line or a little disc that runs around vacuuming your house autonomously, yeah. you know, like that's right. what robots really ended up sort of being. So we're doing the same thing with the, the software and the technology that we're developing today, I guess, is like, wow, this is an amazing new way of expressing ourselves in code. Let's make it try to be a human. Yeah, well, and it's, a, it's an old problem, right? I mean, it, ever since we've had any kind of interface to computers, you know, it's very early on. We had Eliza, you know, on, yeah. on these sort of text-based interfaces and, and uh, trying to express sort of personality mm -hmm. Uh, or a human interface to those. But also, I mean, you know, you look at Clippy uh, or Bob, you know, sort of the Microsoft efforts at this. I mean, the whole history of this is that anthropomorphic personality for digital systems is, it's the third rail of interaction design. It's nothing <laughs> but trouble, right? Because it because it's ultimately scripted templates put onto machine-generated data and interaction. And it's there's always going to be this weird misfit right. because the machines don't think like us they won't have personalities like us they're weird machine the machine logic is is weird and surprising and one of the things that i'm finding as we begin to design for data driven data generated content and interaction is that much of the work is actually just sort of trying to anticipate the weirdness that comes out of these machines that's right that's right so so to kind of um elevate a level before we really dig in. I, I thought a bit about this. There's kind of two ways to talk about AI and design. One of which is the idea of using AI to help us do design, uh, which, and the other side of that coin is like, how long until it can do design for us or replace us, right? And there's some really interesting stuff happening in that area. But what I wanted to talk to you about is the second area, which is using AI as a tool to create things like a, I think what you called it, I, which I really liked a design material. Yeah. Well, I think that right now there's, there's this assumption that machine learning and the algorithms, there's not really a role for designers in that. And indeed, you know, I think a lot of the effort so far, it's been engineering, you know, how do we mm -hmm. create models that can be reasonably predictive? Uh, and it has been sort of an engineering domain. What we're beginning to see now, though, as these things get built into more and more product, is that uh, we really are lacking some design thinking in this stuff. And uh, sort of lowercase design thinking here is, um, mm -hmm. is what I'm yeah, talking yeah, yeah. about. Um, where the presentation of the uh, data-generated content is just as important as the algorithm. Right. Uh, we've made incredible sort of engineering gains in how machine learning and artificial intelligence works, especially with deep learning in the last 
uh, I mean, almost month to month. It's just sort of these incredible leaps. It really is, yeah. Uh, so that the the algorithms are becoming more and more accurate, and yet the presentation of them is a little bit busted. So, for example, we have a, a real sort of one true answer problem with sort of our, our, our answer machines, if you will, like um, Google or Siri or Alexa, uh-huh. where we are increasingly asking them questions and expecting a response. And the systems are often tuned to give a single response. They don't deal well with ambiguity. Even though the algorithm underneath is probably like, eh, I'm about 83% sure of this, it will say, yes, this is the answer. Right. And you see that in particular uh, and what are called the featured snippets on Google, where mm-hmm. you know about 20% of the the requests, search requests, you know, if you put something in, it will give that little text snippet at the top. Yeah. It, that's Google saying not just we found the right a page that has the answer in it, but we believe we found the sentence or the paragraph that has the answer to your question. Right. Um, and the thing about that is that it really feels like. This is the answer to your question. And in fact, for Google Home, that's what it uses for answers. If you ask the device a question out loud, which is fine for very factual kinds of things, but the stuff that Google has been struggling with and really actively trying to sort out over the last few months is the the weirder, softer things, you know, where you can ask it a question until Google fixed it, you know, are women evil? And Google Home would say, why, yes, and give 30 second, a 30 second answer of why it is, because essentially they had a featured snippet that did that. And that is, I hope it goes without saying, horrible, right? That is an awful outcome. And it's just, you know, it's, it's this thing that, that uh, came up in the results with a reasonable amount of certainty uh met some threshold and google said this is the answer to that question right Uh, it's an interesting shift though that we're seeing because you know once upon a time google wasn't an answer machine right it wasn't some a place that we went to for answers it was simply a way to search the web and google's job at the time was simply to say our job is just to reflect what's out there we are simply an index yeah and I think that subtly uh, over the last several years, that has changed, that their role has not been just simply to index the web, but to provide answers. Well, in many ways, I think a search engine uh, is, I mean, it's been a, a tremendous business model. But ultimately, the goal of a search engine is to get you to leave as soon as possible. The goal of a what you would call answer machine is to get you to stay there and to consume more which ultimately, I think, is in Google's best interest. They don't want you to leave the page. Yeah, that's right. I mean, for much of their history, they were just a middleman, right? right? It's just like you do a search, we'll pass you off to the people who have the answer. And um, over time, you know, I think that they've realized that success is the speed of the answer. So Mm -hmm. if they can provide it, they're in page. And often, before you've even finished the query, right, it's actually the page loads results and starts to show you results before you've even asked the question. Right. And sometimes it suggests the question. Um, and I think that that's an area that they are struggling with. You see them trying to uh, provide ways to flag troublesome, not just troublesome answers, but troublesome queries, mm-hmm. you know, where this, this query seems to be. Uh, something that um, is racist or sexist or ageist or, you know, any kind of sort of hate stuff, which I think all of us have stumbled on before 
sometimes where yeah. it's just like, you know, almost comically evil search suggestions. Right, right, right. I think you and I both would agree that this is a design problem, even if many of the people who are involved in the technology would think, well, the, the, the place for design here is how you present the box at the top of the screen. And we're saying, no, actually, it is all the way down to the data sources that you're collecting and the biases that are inherent in those data sources and rooting all of that out through the algorithms that we create into the presentation that uh, should or shouldn't make something look definitive. So it is really saying the work that we have done over these years in user experience applies all the way down into the basic base of this technology. I'm so glad you brought that up because the way that I see it is that this is UX research at unprecedented scale. Oh, I like that. You know, yeah, yeah. The, when you look at the, the best algorithms are built on hundreds of millions of data points. And it's all about finding patterns within those, right? I mean, that's what machine learning is at its core. It's like looking for patterns. And so machine learning, artificial intelligence is ultimately what it's best at is figuring out what's normal and either predicting the next normal thing or calling out problems in, in a healthcare thing, for example. So like, oh, this is somebody who's going to be sick. Um, now, the problem is, is what if what it believes is normal is actually broken. I mean, it's the old garbage in, garbage out uh, phrase of, of uh, engineers and developers from way back. What if normal is garbage? And what I mean by that is certainly it could just be like, here's a flawed or biased data set. Oh, we've only asked white wealthy people uh, you know, for their data. And so it ultimately leaves out uh, this whole blind spot of the rest of the world. Uh, that's one problem. But there's also a problem that it's like there's also all kinds of bias that's cooked into our society and culture right now. Um, so, for example, if you're doing uh, hiring prediction, you know, sort of like what what are the qualities of the person that we want to be the next executive? Right. Well, if you're right. looking at historical data, that's automatically going to put historically underrepresented groups at a disadvantage. Right. Right. It's or or it's like, you know, you're just going to perpetuate uh, sort of the status quo. There were some really highly publicized examples of this over the last few years of systems that were designed for predictive analysis of uh, people who would commit crimes and uh, just rife with bias all the way through. Right. Yeah. And, and the thing is, so just to sort of put a point on that is those, those systems would over index the likelihood of black people to, uh, be repeat criminals mm -hmm. and under index white people. In other words, they would sort of say, Oh, these, these, uh, these, you know, this white person is let is is not a danger when in fact they were a danger and and the, the yep. converse too and so the the thing that obviously has like huge uh, sort of social consequences where you know we're going to put you know continue putting uh more black men in jail than than ought to be there one of the things though that's especially damaging about it is that it's really hard to audit these systems because this is one of the weirdest things about machine learning, especially deep learning, is that you you build algorithmic models for them and you pour a bunch of data in it and it starts making connections, but you don't understand the connections it's making. It's it, it's it's you don't understand why they 
make the decisions that they do. Even the people who design the systems can't tell you how they work. Right. Um, and so how do you go back and ask why this person has been sentenced the way they have? You know, that it's, it's, it fits the model as the only answer. This week's episode is brought to you by Pingdom. I am so glad to have Pingdom as a sponsor because I've been a user for years. Back when we were building Typekit, we made a promise to our users that the fonts we served for their website would load quickly and not delay their pages. We used Pingdom to monitor all of our services and relied on their notifications when any of our systems were slow or reporting outages. This gave us an instant heads up, allowing us to solve problems before our customers even noticed. And I'll share with you a little secret. We used Pingdom to monitor our competitors as well to see how well they were doing and how we compared. You can start monitoring your websites and servers today at pingdom.com presentable. You'll get a 14-day free trial, and when you enter offer code presentable at checkout, you'll get 20% off your first invoice. Pingdom is focused on making the web faster and more reliable for everyone who has a website. They do this by offering powerful and easy to use tools and services. For example, if you're a Pingdom user, monitoring the availability and performance of your server, database, or website, it'll be a breeze. Pingdom takes care of this by using more than 70 global test servers that emulate visits to your site, checking its availability as often as every minute. These days, websites are becoming more and more sophisticated and very often include loads of dependencies. These are things like contact forms, e-commerce checkouts, logins, search functionality, and more. So Pingdom makes it possible to monitor the availability of all of these key interactions that people will have with your site. Look, stuff breaks on the internet all the time. Every month, Pingdom detects around 13 million outages. That's more than 400,000 outages every single day. So regardless of whether you have a small website or you're managing a complete infrastructure, it's super important to monitor the availability and performance. All Pingdom needs is a URL you wish to monitor and they take care of the rest. When Pingdom detects an outage, you'll be immediately alerted so you can fix the error before the downtime affects you and your users. You don't want to be caught out when somebody wants to access your site, so you need Pingdom. Check it out today, and you'll be the first to know when your site is down. Go to pingdom.com presentable for a 14-day free trial, and use the code presentable to get 20% off at checkout. Thanks to Pingdom for sponsoring Presentable and supporting Relay FM. One of the things that you talked about uh, in your article was around this idea of productive humility. Tell me a little bit about that. That's a fascinating phrase. Well, thanks. It's, um, it goes to this idea that we were talking about with the one true answer for Google and other systems, where they have um, an overconfidence problem, essentially, where even though the algorithm may be like, ah, eh, this is like, you know, 80% confidence, the presentation of the information is like 100%. This is, this is the true fact, mm -hmm. uh, without any kind of um, uh, understanding of, of how confident the answer is or where that answer came from. Uh, you know, what is the source of the the data? It's just, this is the answer. And so I think one of the things that design can do as we start to have more and more nuanced information that we need to present is to try to create, you know, as you said, some productive humility in these systems to try to suggest where there's ambiguity uh, and as much as possible advocate sunshine. Um, which is to say, this is uh, how confident the answer is, and this is where the data came from. This is the logic that led to it. Again, that's a really tricky problem mm. with yep. 
with algorithms. You know, it's like where this answer came from. And yet, as we start to put this stuff into looking for patterns in areas that are frankly at the core of our society around sentencing, around hiring and promotion, around financial transactions like loans, really trying to make sure that we understand that these systems are not infallible is, I think, one of the best things that we can do as designers. Interesting, interesting. So the, the sunshine bit, you mean sort of revealing as much of the, the machinery behind it as possible, so to speak? Yeah, that's right. It's, it, I think that it's important to be able to audit the logic as much as we can. Mm. I think that that's a real challenge. Um, and I think that's some, something that's certainly not going to be accessible to the average user. But what we can do is at least say, this is where the data came from. This is sort of the composition of the people who we looked at and, and sourced the data from so you can at least have a sense of, does this include me uh, and should it? Giving people a little bit of control over the data, so to speak. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like when I think about that, I, I, there's a lot of like cloud-based services that I use that will let me like, export my data or allow me to delete things and have assurance that they're being deleted. But this goes, I think, a lot deeper than that. Yeah, that's right. Well, so part of it is understanding why it's suggesting this to me. Who are the other data points, for lack of a better word, in the system that uh, that it's sort of now steering me in this direction? I think another part, though, is there's sort of the, the sunshine of, yeah, what's happening with my data? I think, you know, right now we're in this place where, you know, if, if advocating sunshine is the design principle, a lot of the details about what's happening with our data are stuck with where the where the sun never shines, right? In terms and use, uh, in terms of use statements, you know, where it's just in the legalese that it's like, oh yeah, actually this service is free because we're selling all your stuff. And it's like, oh yeah, your Roomba robot, yeah, we're creating a map of your home and maybe right? oh my we'll God. sell it. I couldn't believe that, that they were selling floor plan or the, the, they had the ability to sell your floor plan as, uh, yeah. as, uh, oh goodness. Well, I, I mean, it, it's, that's the thing is, is as we start to have devices that are now augmented by software, you know, I think that the, we need to start thinking about those devices differently, that, that these are now services, just like the stuff that's on, you know, I think we have an instinct that when we're using a digital service on our computer, that data is there and it's kind of exists someplace. We're not yet used to thinking about that, about the objects and devices in our home. It's just a vacuum cleaner, right? right. Well, no, it's actually a vacuum cleaner that knows the layout of your house and phones back to home about it. And so it's, it's the kind of thing of how can we also as designers help to increase literacy about those things. No, so yeah, that's just being transparent about how we're using data. And I think right now, particularly in the US, there's a real bias not to be transparent about that. And you know, sort of, I, I look as an American, I, I look somewhat enviously over at what the EU is doing with some of their data protection laws that are about to kick in in the next year. And just they are very. Um, they require transparency now. They require mm -hmm. data portability. If you're going to use my data, I need to know where and how. So do you think there's an uh, opportunity there for, um, I don't know, change in the, in the U.S. or even the U.K., frankly, is following the same patterns? Well, I think there's certainly an opportunity. I think that the trends right now in terms of how companies are allowed to use personal data are going in the opposite direction in the U.S., uh, which means that we're unlikely to get much regulation for that, at least in the in the near term. So I guess for 
product managers and for designers, it's really it's on us to do the right thing and to be as transparent as possible and to try to think, you know, what kind of a world do we want to create? Because it's in these early days that you sort of set the mold in the same way that we set the mold with advertising for media. It's like, oh, yes, content, of course, is free. And we pay for it by giving up everything about ourselves and being drowned in, in uh, advertising. And that's been the model for the last nearly 20 years right. because that's how it started out. And so I think really sort of being thoughtful about how we want that to take shape is is really important for designers right now because I don't think that the regulation will force us there. Right. right. I think we can look at some of the models of regulation like in the EU and say, oh yeah, those are those are the design principles that we should adopt. I think, you know, just speaking of design principles, the way the way that I think about this often is that especially with control over data with artificial intelligence, there's a lot of fears out there. You know, it's like sort of like, what's gonna, you know, what's gonna happen? You know, who's watching me, and to what end? Uh, and I think that we can productively shift those fears by flipping them and saying, what are the design principles that will counter the fears that we're afraid of, as designers, but also as consumers? And how can we sort of carry that forward to create the world that we want to live in? Interesting. Do you have a you have an example of that? Well, I think that. You know, one of these things is is just this idea of I'm afraid that, you know, artificial intelligence systems are going to have bias built in that they're going to inherit from, you know, our own past. Mm -hmm. And so I think that, frankly, then it's like, well, great, let's make it a design principle that we are going to do a whole ton of UX research to make sure we're collecting the right data to root out bias and bad assumptions. I'm afraid that I'm going to lose control of, over my data. Well, it's like, well, let, let's make it a design principle that all, all of our products are going to give people control over their data. So I, that's really what I'm getting yeah. at. It's like, yeah. you know, if there are things that we're afraid of, let's turn that, <laughs> let's turn that frown upside down <laughs> and, and have, you know, a positive statement of action that we'll take to counter those things in our own practice and, and hopefully in our own companies and ultimately in our own industry. Yeah, yeah. Well, and then once again, it gets back to kind of a theme that I talk about all the time on this podcast, which is getting influence that designers have over, over products and having them involved as early as possible in the process uh, with as much authority, frankly, you know, control over the direction and the decisions and the prioritizations and the values that are being hashed out uh, as products get developed. I love that. And I, I think that with that means we just have to really consciously take responsibility. You know, you are your bot and, and, and it's, it's acting on the, the values that you cook into it. Right. And you may not always be aware that it's like, oh, wait a second, software does have values cooked into it, but oh, it's about that. shaping behavior. And, uh, and so I think that we owe it to ourselves and certainly to our users to be conscious about what those values are. Yeah, software, uh, products, data, none of it is agnostic. It almost can't be if human hands have touched it at all. Right? Yeah. But, well, I mean, that's, I think, such an interesting thing is that we have this root assumption, most of us, that the machines are objective. It's, it's from the data, right? You know, and it's like, but it's the oldest line ever, right? It's, it's lies, lies, and statistics, right? <laughs> I think it's, a, it's an interesting thing, though. I mean, just as we gather more and more data, I mean, it, it used to be, you know, the old saw, if, if, it's, if it's free, you're not the customer, you're the product. Uh, but now you're also the data set. You know, you're the you're you're the you're feeding these these enormous kind of models that are that are developing. Um, and I think that what it means as data becomes more and more important, and there are just more 
ways to gather it, um, even from our own smartphones and the pictures that we take and share. Uh, some, in other words, data that we are uh, voluntarily sharing, as well as the stuff that's being gathered without our knowledge. It seems inevitable to me that total surveillance is going to happen. I mean, it, it just seems like that genie is is out of the bottle at this point. You know, total surveillance is inevitable. What's not inevitable, I think, is what we choose to do with that as designers and also as consumers. You know, so what, if if everything is going to be surfaced and brought into these digital systems, what are our responsibilities there? And I think a lot of it is um, both, you know, as we were talking about advocating sunshine and being really clear about how this data is being used, when it's being used, giving you control over deleting it or moving it to another system. But also, I think, you know, just this idea of being clear about how accurate the predictions are, you know, and being kind of honest about how good the models are um, and where there may be some some trouble, some bias. So really, like having a system designed to kind of say, I feel pretty confident this is a dinosaur. I'm not so sure about the surfboard. It looks like it to me, but that that's that's the sort of idea, yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. And the algorithms know this already. You know, so going back to the dinosaur and the surfboard example, you know, the uh, the bot just reports, here's the recommended caption. But if you go back and look at the, you know, the guts of the response from the API, it actually says really confident about the dinosaur, not so sure about the surfboard. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and so like, these are things then like, oh, great, how do we actually surface that information in a useful way? in the caption, you know, how might we say something more like dinosaur, maybe on a surfboard, uh, you know, right, right. it's just like little subtleties and nuance. And I think a lot of it can come to, to language. Um, Google's been experimenting about with this a bit in terms of its, uh, image recognition where sometimes you'll, you'll, um, uh, or, or with its image search, you know, you can upload an, an image and it will say the best guess for this, if it's not very confident is, yeah. We think it's a dinosaur on a, on a surfboard, but it'll, it'll use the term best guess. That's great. Which right. is different from this is. Which is very much that sort of humility you're talking about. That's right. You know, when you say dig into the guts of the, of the response from the system, it gets to kind of questions I have about being really pragmatic about this as designers, uh, which is like we can, we can talk about AI and machine learning and values and all of those things, and that's all very, very important. But at the end of the day, I'm also like, but oh, wait a minute, what, what are the nuts and bolts of all of this? Like, can I, like, how do I get my head around how it actually works? And so I spent some time doing that over the last couple months. And I, it, it's remarkable how accessible and easy it is to, to really kind of use. Now, of, to your point, the systems behind the APIs are pretty opaque. Like, I upload an image, I get back a bunch of, frankly, JSON data that I can use in my program. But it's, it's, in terms of like playing around and like experimenting and things like that, honestly, 10, 15 lines of code, and you could be talking to any one of these like Microsoft Azure or Google or uh, Amazon's incredibly uh, powerful AI systems and start to do interesting prototypes and experiments and play around with it. So there's almost, with a little bit of technical knowledge, no reason why we can't all be starting to experiment and explore with this stuff kind of the way we did years ago with like the first mobile prototypes and then before that with 
just how easy CSS and HTML were. I'm so glad you brought that up because, uh, and, and you mentioned earlier using uh, artificial intelligence, machine learning as a design material. It's here for us. It's you know as you say, it's the the typical web designer, web developer have the tech technological know-how to start using these APIs. The interesting thing is that when you look at sort of the, the big players, the big industry players in machine learning, it's IBM, Amazon, Microsoft, and Google. And as all of them have been really competing to create the best possible model, they are at the same time equally competing to give, all, to give it away. Uh, in the form of these uh, APIs that you can use really practically for free. Yeah. And so essentially, if you want to have Alexa's superpowers, you've got them for free. You, there's an API that is really easy to just sort of pipe some audio in there, and it will give you not only the transcript of what that audio is, but the intent behind it and really sort of start to parse all those, uh, all that information. So all this stuff, image recognition, speech recognition, pattern matching for product recommendations, all those things are just like out there lying around waiting for you to put them to use. And I think that we're gonna start to see this really interesting kind of golden age of large trucks driving by <laughs> and Welcome from New York City. <laughs> I think we're going to see this golden age of sort of AI mashups like we did back in the Web 2.0 era where we can pipe these things together in really interesting ways. Because right now, just a regular average run-of-the-mill web designer or web developer, you can uh, have access to APIs that let you upload an image, recognize what that image is have that translated into Japanese and then speak it in Japanese. So you could turn the whole world into a living flashcard for learning Japanese if you wanted to, right. uh, just by piping it through all these different AI APIs. So yeah, it's it's ready to be used and played with right now. So I, I think one of the really important things for designers to hear and understand is that machine learning and artificial intelligence are not the domain of the big companies or of data scientists or of engineers. The raw material is there ready for you to use and build products on top of or incorporate it into your existing products. And crucially, there's really a lot of meaty design work and open questions about how to present that information in productive and humble ways. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the best way to do that, frankly, is to get your hands dirty in how it all works. Like, there's this perpetual and frankly exhausting conversation about should designers learn how to code, uh, which I don't care too much about. Uh, but what I do firmly believe is that it's your responsibility as a designer to deeply understand the capabilities and the limitations of the technologies you're working with. Right? Yeah. It, uh, in, in that way, again, back to this idea of, of the material we're designing with, just like uh, the artists and designers of the physical world in, in, you know, decades past had to truly understand like the stuff that they had, that they were working with. I think we have the same responsibility for technology, whether or not we're the ones that actually write the lines of code. But, yeah. uh, so this idea of like, come on, like demystify it, get in, get your hands into what these APIs that are, as you said, largely free to, to, to mess around with get in there and really see like, how could I start to make use of all of this? And that's gonna to lead to all this sort of open creative space for how to solve interesting interface problems, frankly, 
and, and user interactions and all of that stuff uh, as we do the design work that we're doing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, and, you know, the nice surprise there is that it's easier than you would expect. You know, it is, I feel like this happens, especially with the web all the time. It's like, wait, what? I can do that? <laughs> you know, it's like, yes, a lot of... A lot of sweat and blood has gone into making this stuff be easy to use, and it's um, it's pretty remarkable. The downside is the reason that all these companies are competing to give it away is because they want your data. Yeah. They want you to upload those images. They are continuing to train their data sets because there is a concern, which we'll see if that plays out or not, that this is a, a you know a winner-take-all scenario. Yeah. There'll be one. Yeah. Know, sort of one true image recognition API. Right. Uh, and so, you know, there's some competition there. So I have, so at the same time that I've sort of like, great, this is, this is this whole area where we can play and exercise and learn these new skills and, and really find out what the questions are that need to be answered. Um, I'm also a little bit, I'm a little nervous about the fact that we're playing in these playgrounds of companies that have very specific agendas. Yeah, there's, I mean, it's a little bit like that, the way that Google started with voice recognition, right? I think you've, you've talked about this in the past as well, which they, they had that like 1-800 number where you could call up and get phone numbers of other people, right? Like the 411 information service. That's it. Which had nothing to do with being a product uh, or, or anything. It was all about them collecting voice samples with different accents from around the country so that they could train and what eventually became a machine learning-based uh, voice recognition algorithm that works really well because they have so much data. But there's a, almost like a bit of deception in there in that like this is what, you know, we're just collecting the data and people think they're using a free service and they like it. But in fact, we're doing something entirely different with it. Yeah, you see the same thing happening with like you know giant buckets, S three buckets full of images that the storage is almost so cheap it's free, but Amazon is probably looking at all of those and using the the patterns and all of that to get better at what they do. Yeah, yeah, and and you know it, I think there's no harm in saying this is how we're using it, and I'm sure that Amazon and your example would say that someplace in the fine print somewhere. But there's a kind of a thing of, of we need to, as designers, really start to put this in people's face to say this is information that will be used in these different ways. By sharing it with us, we're going to use it in these ways. And hopefully most of those will be completely benign things. But the idea of just getting us used to the idea that even though we are using one service, we may be feeding another one is really important. Yeah, yeah. The question that we should ask as designers is, if I could detect patterns in anything that my customers do, that my users do, and present suggestions or decisions based on that, where might I do that? And it can be very small things, uh, and it doesn't necessarily have to animate the entire interface, but it's really opportunities to have small interventions as well as large ones. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Uh, lots to think about, and, and you've been thinking about it a lot, so I appreciate it. <laughs> I will point people to the um, design in the era of the algorithm, that you, the article that you wrote. I think it's fantastic. That's on the Big Medium website, which is an agency that you run. I do. And you've written a book. You wrote a book for a book apart on kind of the, the last wave of design trends around mobile. Isn't that right? Design for Touch, is that what it's called? Yeah, that's right. About two years ago, I wrote a book called Design for Touch. And uh, yeah, the, the stuff that we tend to do at Big Medium is really helping 
companies and organizations design for what's next. Mm -hmm. uh, the stuff that's that's here and accessible that you should start leaning into for the last decade or so that's really been animated by uh, mobile and the explosion of devices yeah. that we've had. Uh, but the emerging thing that we're starting to get our heads around and, and working on in projects is, you know, yeah, how do you use machine learning, which is now animating all of the stuff that is emerging as as the important consumer technologies right now. Yeah, yeah, good stuff. I had to look through some of the projects you've been working on. It just looks like you're having a blast. <laughs> really it's cool so stuff. fun. Yeah. It's so fun. I'm it's, really lucky. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Well, Josh, thanks so much. Great conversation. I really appreciate you being on the show. Thank you, sir. And that's another episode of Presentable. Hey, got any questions? You can email us at hello at presentable.fm or get in touch via Twitter by following Presentable FM. We hope you've really enjoyed the show. And if you do, could you take a moment and give us a rating on iTunes? It really helps and we'd really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. And until next time, I'm Jeffrey Veen, and this was Presentable. Presentable.